as we read God's word together. Who is like the wise? And who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine and the hardness of his face is changed. I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause. For he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme. And who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing. And the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. For he does not know what, it, what is to be. For who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun, when man had power over man to his hurt. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before Him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. There's a vanity that takes place on earth that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the, the deeds of the wicked. And there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. And I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go well with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep. Then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. You may be seated. I trust you uh, remember um, or have heard of uh, Happy Days, those of you old enough to, have, to remember watching Happy Days back in the day. Um, the Fonz had a, a, a sentence, a thing, a phrase he couldn't say. Every time he tried, uh, his, his, he just couldn't get there. Uh, do you remember he would try to say, I'm sorry, the, you know, the one or two times he ever did anything wrong, I suppose. He would try to say, I'm sorry, but it always came out, I'm sizzizz. And he'd try again, I'm sizzizz. He just, he couldn't, he physically couldn't say, I'm sorry. Um, 
In many ways, I think there's a phrase that most of us uh, in this day and age can't say. We think that there's something wrong with us if we are ever driven to have to admit that we don't know something. Even kids learn at a, at a young age that it might actually be better just to pretend and make up a story, not a lie, but a story about some event and act like you know things that in reality you just don't know. We, we have a hard time admitting, I don't know. We think we're supposed to know. Facts, the future, what, what, what's come, what, what lies ahead for us, uh, what's going on in the world. We just have a really hard time admitting that we don't know. And that's where that great 20th century philosopher Ozzy Osbourne comes in handy. Um, Ozzy has a song called I Don't Know. And it asks this whole question about, you know, people keep coming to me for answers. Like, I'm, like there's stuff out there I'm supposed to believe. And the chorus ends like this. He literally says, don't look to me for answers. Don't ask me. I don't know. At least he's honest. At least he's able to admit that sort of sense of weakness, that sense of, of human limitation, of I don't have all the answers for the, the questions that you're trying to ask. I don't have the answers to the things you try, you're trying to learn, trying to know. Our knowledge, our understanding, we're, we're limited and we don't really want to admit that. And that's essentially where the preacher is at this point in Ecclesiastes. He asks the question, who is like the wise? Who knows the interpretation of a thing? Who can interpret and understand who out there really is wise and who out there really can know? He's admitted so far that he's tried all sorts of things, wealth and pleasure, to find meaning and, and value and purpose to his life, but to life in general. What does wisdom get you? What does wealth get, get you? What does pleasure get you? And his conclusion always seems to be it may serve for a time, but ultimately it doesn't answer the big meaningful questions of life. And here in chapter 8, he turns his attention, you know, he keeps using, um, you, you can almost picture a, a scientist with this collection of Petri dishes and, and each Petri dish is a different sort of test and a different I don't know, bacteria, different whatever you're trying to figure out in this Petri dish. His Petri dish in chapter 8 now is rulers. In fact, he examines both earthly kings and the one true eternal heavenly king over all of creation. When a king issues a decree, when a, a king issues a command, the best thing that you can do is to obey it. And part of the reason for that is uh, the fact that God has put him in that office. That seems to be part of what he means in because of God's oath 
to him. Keep the king's command, verse 2, because of God's oath to him. It's, it's sort of like before God and these witnesses kind of a statement that we, uh, when we make vows at a wedding, God is the one that has put him in that office. And so in that sense, the best thing you can do is to, to keep his command. But there's a warning. Actually, there's a couple of warnings that he then gives in verse 3. You have to be careful when you're in the presence of a king. For one thing, uh, you don't want to... Uh, hastily leave his presence. Uh, do not be hasty. Be not hasty to go from his... Don't get so angry at the king if you're so privileged as to be able to, to serve in the king's court. Don't get so suddenly angry and frustrated with him that you storm off. He'll remember that. The next warning though is but also, don't be so foolish that you stand on an idea he very clearly is not interested in. Don't insist on, on taking a stand for a cause that he has already dismissed, that he has already disapproved. People that serve in the court of the king need wisdom. They need wisdom to know how to act. They need wisdom to, to know how to interact with the king and with others. Because this is a guy who could, at a moment's notice, remove your head from its body. So you've got, you've got to have wisdom to navigate those waters. To understand the king and his disposition and how he works and how he thinks and Know when to push and when to back off. It takes wisdom. It takes understanding. If you're going to disagree with an absolute monarch, you better be prepared to face the consequences. And for that matter, don't stand too long on a suggestion that he has already said, that's a dumb idea. We don't need to do that. Because the king rules as he sees fit. Because the, the, the king rules as he desires. The best thing you can do is just obey the commands of the king. Your life, regardless of what you think or believe or whether you agree or disagree, your life is safer that way. You know, it's fascinating because you can, you can read back through history and read about the, the, the struggles and conflicts that, that men and women in the court of a king or of a monarch have had to wrestle with. How do I, how do, I do this? Go read stories of, of Thomas Cromwell serving Henry VIII. I mean, this guy masterminded Henry's divorce from his first wife, Catherine of Aragon, by masterminding Henry's divorce from Rome and the Pope. He, he masterminded the beheading of Henry's second wife, Anne Boleyn. 
He masterminded the marriage of his fourth wife, who ultimately, when Henry finally saw her, said, she doesn't please me, she doesn't please me. I'm like, immediately dismiss her. I am not happy with her. Make it end. And he couldn't. There was nothing Cromwell could do to put an end to that marriage contract. Here's a man who's done what the king wanted and more whose life would hang in the balance over one or two minor issues along the way. And when Henry finally regretted beheading Cromwell, it was too late. Where's the advantage of wisdom? Where's the advantage of of knowledge and understanding? Where's the advantage if you can't predict the future? If you can't read the mind of the king? If you can't read the mind of your boss? Try as you might to get inside their head and figure out what they think and you are limited to, I just have to do what they say. I have to follow their commands. The preacher's, part of the preacher's point here in chapter 8 is the wishes of the king come and go and that might mean that when they go, so do you. Well, then what advantage is wisdom? What can you possibly possibly gain by knowing things if it won't protect you from the desires of the king? With these kinds of, of limitations on human knowledge, what, what value is there in wisdom? For that matter, verse 6, it actually kind of gets worse because there's trouble that lay down our road. There's, there's trouble and conflict and misfortune in the pathway of mankind and you can't always see it coming because it isn't always even your fault. But there's this, this trouble, this conflict, this misfortune that lies in our path. You know, it's hard to know the right time. It's hard to know the, the proper action, partly because of the trouble or the tragedy that we have to endure as people, as humans, as limited creatures. And those, those misfortunes, those troubles make it almost impossible for us to plan. We're leaving for vacation. Wake up the next morning, no we're not, because there's a hurricane bearing down on the coast. We're on our way to, no we're not, because now there's storms moving through and it's, you can't go. The preacher sort of echoes this, really this view of the world today that if only I knew a little bit more, if only I had a little more information, if only I had a little more education. Think of all the, the presidents and governors that have won their election on it's about education. 
and then it doesn't seem to change. The notion that if we just had a little more information, our biggest problem the preacher is implying here isn't sin. It's not a sin problem. It's an ignorance problem. It's a lack of education problem. For that matter, even if man did know enough, that knowledge wouldn't give him power, verse 8. You can know all you want, but there's nothing you can do about even your, the day of your death. What? Then what's the point of knowing stuff? You see his trouble. You see his conflict. But then you read... It's, you read through Ecclesiastes... And for the most part, you think this guy is horribly depressed and horribly lost and horribly confused. And then you get glimpses of, of light, of, of clarity. Sometimes reading Ecclesiastes can be a little bit like reading the silver chair. Uh, if you've read the Chronicles of Narnia... Uh, the silver chair. I'm not going to recount the whole story. If you know it, you know it. If you don't, then you, you have Sunday afternoon to read it. It's a great read. Um, but but Eustace and Jill and Puddleglum are on a mission to, it turns out, save Prince Rillian. And Aslan gave them these three signs. They were supposed to keep repeating these three signs to themselves as they were carrying out this mission. And it turns out they had bumped into Prince Rillian a couple times on their mission. They just didn't know it because he was disguised and he was with this, this green queen lady. Um, when they finally find him in this underground world that belongs to this green queen lady, they, they meet Prince Rillian and he's, every time they've seen him and, and with her, again, they didn't realize it, but as you, as the reader, you know what you're dealing with. Every time they see him, he's, he's, he's quiet and he's calm and he has his wits about him. And then when they find him strapped to the silver chair, he's yelling and he's squirming and shaking and screaming at them to free him. Now, you would think that the sane Prince Rillian was the calm, peaceful, quiet one. Not the loud, screaming, yelling one. That sounds like the insane Prince Rillian, not the sane one. Until he says, By Aslan, I command you to free me. You get these moments of clarity from Prince Rillian that you're, you can't tell which is the real Prince Rillian. Is it the screaming, yelling, squirmy one, which actually turns out to be the, the real Prince Rillian? Or is it the calm, sane-seeming one? You feel like that when you read Ecclesiastes. You read depression and doom and despair and agony on me. And then you get moments of clarity, like verses 12 and 13. Well, verses 11 to 14. It's because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, you know, because justice isn't handed out on wicked people fast enough, good people are encouraged to just be wicked because nothing's going to happen to them. However, 
Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before Him. But it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear God. You get these moments of, of, of clarity where he speaks actual biblical truth. I know that the righteous will be treated well in the life to come. I know that the evil will ultimately be repaid for their evil. And then he follows it with yet more doom, despair, and agony. Yet there is a vanity that takes place on the earth. Righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. And there are wicked people to whom it happens according to deeds of the righteous. I know that those who fear God will ultimately be welcomed into His presence. However, then He shifts His focus back under the sun. He limits. We, we see that phrase over and over again. Under the sun, under the sun. He's limiting His research to life between the horizons, life on this earth. See, His problem is He sees people like our friend Polly Stone. Polly passed away a week or two ago. Polly was a friend of ours at Clemson. She graduated from Mississippi State, was really involved in RUF, College Campus Ministry at the PCA. She came to Clemson, was an intern. Um, she helped Nancy understand Reformed theology. She and I had classes together um, at, at seminary. Um, Nancy and I and Bob and Polly had a uh, Ralph Davis over for dinner one night while he was teaching a class. I mean, this kind of she's worked for the seminary for RTS uh, in Charlotte. She's been their, you know, sort of director of institutional. She's the one that makes sure they are doing all the requirements for um, accreditation and all that sort of stuff. Polly battled cancer for four years and passed away a week and a half ago, two weeks ago, at the ripe old age of fifty-one. Two kids in college and a husband left. The preacher looks at that and goes, God, why would you take her? While all around Charlotte, there are men and women living ungodly, adulterous lives out in the open for all to see with no care in the world. And they're living just fine. That's his conflict. That's his, that's his struggle. How am I supposed to make sense of a world in which earthly rulers and it seems the eternal heavenly ruler both seem to be making it up as they go? When life around me tells me God's not paying attention, now what do I do? That's his, his struggle. That's his conflict. It's not just that earthly kings give him headache. It's that God's ways cause him aches and pains and sorrow too. And his struggle is, I, I can't know what God is doing. I can't find out the work, verse 17. I can see what he's doing, but I can't find it out. I can't mind the depths of it. I can't understand it. 
He doesn't always tell me why. We want to know why, and he won't always tell us why. There's vanity on the earth, and it's that righteous people suffer what should belong to wicked people. And wicked people are treated with long, healthy lives and should have been, and end up treated the way righteous people should be treated. And he's just thrown for this loop. He's trying to interpret God's purposes through his observation. The observation of the world around us will not tell us why God does blank. He tells us that in his word. And if he doesn't tell us, then we aren't supposed to know. Earthly wisdom won't tell you what God is up to, verses 16 and 17. And the question from verse 1 is finally answered in verse 17. Who knows? Who can interpret a thing? And his answer, nobody. Now what? Now what am I supposed to do? Not even the wise man knows. But let me encourage you with this. Because the whole of Scripture testifies that God does indeed know. He doesn't just know the future. He actually holds the future in His hand. You read in Galatians 4.4 that in the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son to redeem the world. The implication there is there was an appointed time that that time up to that point wasn't just some random cycle that keeps playing the same thing over and over and over again in an infinite loop, but was actually marching towards a purpose, an aim, a point, towards a king who does his will, but for our good and for his glory. God's work in this world isn't random. It isn't aimless. He's building His kingdom. And the gates of hell itself cannot and will not prevail against it. If you're here this morning trusting in Christ for your salvation, be encouraged by the preacher's ignorance. He points you to a greater... Yes, He was king over Israel. But He points you to a greater king who isn't ignorant. Who doesn't not know. Who isn't lost. Who isn't confused. Who isn't weak and unable. But who absolutely can and will deliver you from the power of darkness. He doesn't just know the future. He actually holds the future. And therefore, you can trust Him with your future. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank You that You've sent the one true King of Israel to rule and reign over all of creation, to rule and reign in our hearts. And we pray that as 
that King gives His commands as You've given in Your Word that we would obey, that we would follow the edicts, the commands of the King. We pray that You would grow in us a deeper trust, recognizing that You don't always give us the answers we want, that we think we deserve. You frequently hold, withhold those from us. We are creatures You are the Creator. We are limited. You are not. And so, Father, we pray that we would trust that the secret things belong to You. And those things that You've revealed are for us and for our children after us. Would You make us ministers of not a gospel of of fear, of dread, but ministers of the gospel of hope found in a King who holds the future and is working all things together for our good and for His glory. We pray all of this in the name of Christ. Amen.